Hi, I'm with Dr. Eric Byrne, the superintendent of Rye City Public Schools, and welcome to the Rye Radio Hour, Dr. Byrne. Thank you so much, Peter. It's yeah. a pleasure to be here. So, Eric, um, I always try trick questions, but actually, uh, it's not necessary. I, I spent my most of my career meeting with teachers, so I ask you maybe the first thing is, do you miss teaching? I, I definitely do, but... Uh, I work really hard to spend as much time as possible in classrooms, yeah. visiting, collaborating. Teachers will invite me in to participate in an activity. But this year, I did start out the year co-teaching reading in a first grade class. Wow. For okay. the first few weeks of the school year, yeah, that's great. I was co-teaching with Carrie Hughes over at Midland School. And actually, next week, I have a planning meeting because I'll be teaching in kindergarten, co-teaching in kindergarten with Heidi Nig, and yeah. uh, I, I'm getting my marching orders. I think I might be co-teaching mathematics with our new uh, Singapore math program, Math and Focus. Well, um, you know, good luck. What was it like your first day on the job teaching? Do you remember that day? Wow, that's a great, great question. So I remember the day because I was... Uh, brand new teacher. I was hired as an emergency substitute teacher in New York City at Grover Cleveland High School. I was teaching science and mathematics. Uh, it was a huge school in Ridgewood, Queens, about yep. 4,000 kids. Right. And I wore a suit, uh, not something that you saw in New York City high schools, certainly not in Grover Cleveland. Yeah. Then. Yeah. I think Myron Labrador, the principal, had a suit on and next to him I was the only other person, but I was excited. I was, yeah. you know, really pumped for the job, so I put a suit on. How long did that last, the suit? Uh, the the suit was ruined that day <laughs> because it was uh, a cold day outside, and uh, I know you've been in many New York City public schools, yeah. so yeah. like big school like Newdorf High School, right. which you're familiar yeah. with. Yeah. In one of my classes, I leaned up against the radiator, and it was so hot. <laughs> that the paint was melting on the radiator, got on my suit. On the seat of your pants? And on the leg. Got a few laughs. I got a few kids. laughs. The kids had a grand old time with it, but the, the suit pants were ruined, yeah. and that was the end yeah. of that suit. Yeah. So um, that was definitely one of uh, the highlights So of how that did day. you realize that you actually were, were good at managing a classroom? Because we've all been in classrooms in which you have somebody who's intellectually very bright and this and that, but they just don't have a feel for how to manage 23, 25 adolescents and so on. How so, did you... Sense? So it was definitely not then. Yeah, right. Because right, right, uh, right, as, yeah. as a young teacher at Grover Cleveland, um, I struggled with management. My yeah. classes, the smaller classes were around 35 kids, and my, uh, a couple of my classes had 40 and above. And it was a real challenge. It was a tough community, yeah. uh, low socioeconomic, kids right. with lots of needs, large ENL population. Did you and have some kids different. who would fall asleep in your classes? I've noticed that a lot of times, uh, like visiting schools and so on. And there'll be some kid in the back or whatever who's got his hoodie over him and you realize he's out cold. So I, yeah. thankfully I did not have that, but I okay. did uh, make a deal with my kids. They were allowed to bring food into the classroom. Huh. Uh, okay. So, and, and partially because my Sci one of the science rooms where I taught two periods a day, right outside the room in the hallway, the student government would sell candy and chips and all sorts Sugar. of incredibly okay. unhealthy things. 
And if I didn't allow them to bring them in, they wouldn't come to class. Mm. And my math class, which was down in the cafeteria, they mm. threw up some sheetrock and created a classroom. Yeah. You had to walk through the lunch line in order to get to my classroom. So if I wanted my kids to come to class, they were bringing their trays of sloppy joes and tater tots into yeah. the classroom. Yeah. But I learned management from uh, my wife, Andrea, yeah. who was also a new teacher at Grover Cleveland. That's how you she, met. Uh, that's how we met. And yeah. she, she was tough. She In had the, such uh, great management <laughs> and helped me out because I was struggling. <laughs> So did you meet her in the faculty lounge or what used to be called smoke and coke? Uh, <laughs> Coca-Cola. Uh, if you were in schools in the 70s, you know, they would race the faculty lounge, light up, have a coke, and then back in the classroom again. Are we going to edit this out? No, I think we'll leave it. But anyway, for the audience listening, this is smoke and Coca-Cola we're talking about. So we didn't meet in the faculty lounge. I don't know if there was one. If there was, I never went there. Yeah. But... Um, the kids knew about the two of us. There weren't too many young, new teachers there, yeah. and they kept trying to fix us up. They were telling her about this new science teacher, and they were telling me that I should take the nice lady teacher. The guy teacher. with the, the, the paint on his pants. Yeah, yeah. they were telling me to take the nice lady teacher to uh, McDonald's or uh, yeah. the Chinese restaurant near yeah. the school for lunch. But the way we actually did meet was she... In the old days, in New York City, we had what's called automate the school. So we would get a daily bubble sheet, and we had to take attendance on yeah. that bubble sheet for right. every class. Right. One day, she got all of the bubble sheets for all of the new teachers. So none of our names made it to the bubble sheets. So this mm -hmm. is in January or February of, of year one of teaching, yeah. and we still didn't exist as humans. We were just teacher A. So I was teacher A science. She was teacher A in English. She got all of the teacher A attendance sheets and decided to go deliver them where they needed to be, and that's how we met. So I, I owe my marriage to the New York City. Now it's the so Department what, what, of what Education. So what was your opening line? Like, I hear you're really good at classroom management. No, I, I think she said, I think she opened by saying, these are yours and you need a little help because they look like they're out of control. Yeah. Well, one of the misnomers, uh, we hear it all the time in life, which is, those who can't teach. And then when you go in an urban school system in particular um, and you see a unruly classroom and then you walk down the hall and then you're in a classroom that works and you realize, wow, there's a real difference going on between who's in classroom A and who's in classroom B. And uh, I don't think actually most people, particularly in a nice community like Rye, you're not dealing with too many of these issues and so on, but nothing compared to an urban school system and so on. And, and everybody knows pretty soon you know, who's good at this and who isn't. So your wife was really good at it. She still is. Yeah. She's an yeah. exceptional teacher. Yeah. So what did she teach? She taught English uh, yeah. and business. So you, you didn't really get a job with your core subject area yeah, those yeah, days. Yeah. You, you were teaching everything. So she taught English and business um, and typing, and I taught science and math. So did you take typing in high school or not? I, I took typing in sixth grade because yeah. that was required in New York City mm -hmm. uh, where I went to school. You must have, you had to take typing in sixth grade. So my father, when I was... 13 or 14, uh, who made his way through college by, you know, he was an editor, yearbook, typing, this and that. So it sent me to the Ossining Business School. 
in the summer. So there I was with these ladies, 20 to 25, beehive hairdos, and then this pimply 14-year-old typing a quick brown fox. But anyway, I learned how to type. And then I sent my son Nick and Will to, where'd you guys go? Typing school in White Plains because we were poorly behaved one summer. <laughs> okay. That was punishment. And, and, I, and is typing back, so if I'm in Rye High, do I have an opportunity to learn how to type? Uh, generally, the keyboarding skills come at the younger grades. So we okay. have diff there's different software that we use with kids, Type to Learn and, and other applications that help them yeah. to learn the keyboarding skills pretty quickly. So when did you get the bug, or not bug, but when did you decide, you know what, maybe I can do... I wouldn't say more than teaching because I, uh, when you see somebody who's really great, particularly in the inner city school system, teaching, you think, oh, please, don't ever promote this person because, you know, they know what they're doing. Uh, but how did it occur to you, to th you sort of think, maybe, maybe I should go into leadership, maybe I should be a principal and so on? So, uh, I moved from Grover, Cleveland to work in the community school district two of Manhattan. Yeah. And at the time, it, it was a school district that was being studied and recognized for real progressive education and innovation. This Anthony, is not district one. No, this district two. So district two was also the east side of Manhattan. Right, right. But we would actually start down at the tip of Manhattan, go through Chinatown. We mm -hmm. even had the school on Governor's Island, which doesn't exist anymore, yeah. it was ours. Yeah. Uh, we had the Chinatown schools, then District 1 was the Lower East Side. Yeah, I've been in District 1. And then yeah. District 1 picked up, I guess, down uh, PS30. Uh, there were a bunch of schools on the, yeah. on the East Side down in uh, the 30s and 40s. And then District 2 went, ran from there all the way up to about 96th Street, PS198, okay. right. uh, up on 96th and yeah. um, 3rd Avenue. So we had all those schools below 96th Street on the east side, and we looped around to the uh, west side to about 55th Street. So how did you decide one day, you know what, I'm teaching science, I'm teaching math, or I'm teaching business, or whatever. Um, I mean, or was it your wife who said, you know, you're probably a lot better running schools than being in the classroom, whatever. Well, I, you know, I had switched teaching jobs, so I was teaching in Manhattan in District yeah. 2. And there was tremendous professional development happening in the school district. There was a lot of work around the, the standards movement. And Tony yep. Alvarado was our superintendent at the time. And he had, at one point, been chancellor of New York City. Right. And it was really an interesting place to be working. There was a lot of, of incredible opportunities. I, I met him once. I was very impressed. Yeah, a lot of opportunities as a teacher to get better at your craft mm -hmm. and to try new things. And yeah. so... I had been asked by Tony um, and Elaine Fink, our deputy, to assist in writing a, a grant, a National Science Foundation grant for science. And so I assisted, helped write it, and we won the grant. And so I didn't know we won it, but I got called to a meeting down at the district office. We used to call the DO. It was on yeah. uh, 7th Avenue and like 28th Street. In a, office building. Yeah. So I went down for the meeting and, and Tony said, just want to let you know we won the grant, now you have to go do it. And I moved from being a classroom teacher to being the District 2 Science Coordinator, 
which was a staff development more than, because that's what our belief was in District 2, mm -hmm. is that administrators weren't managers. We were staff developers and coaches, and yeah. we were moving the program along. So I became the district-wide science coordinator and worked across our 40 or so schools to So do, so do we see grant. a sort of shift away from the principal as manager to the principal as the academic leader and coach? And I can remember a time when I first got on educational publishing in the 70s, it wasn't unusual to see an ex-athletic director as a principal of an elementary school or middle school. You know, they were good at, you know, collecting the balls and keeping the... I'm, I'm serious. I 100% agree with you, Peter. Yeah. The common pathway yeah. was male physical education teacher becomes the dean of students, becomes the assistant principal, becomes the principal. Yeah. That, that was certainly a model in New York City when I was a, a student, when I was a teacher. So when did it shift? And, or how did it shift? Um, I, I think it was different in a lot of different places, but I think the research showed, and, yeah. and when people started looking at school performance and instructional outcomes, yeah. they started, you know, and the Wallace Fund has done a, a tremendous, the Wallace Foundation done a tremendous amount of work in looking at the impact of principles on student achievement. And they've identified all these different characteristics for successful schools, one of them being the ability for the principal to be an instructional leader and coach to their staff. You know, it's it's said about baseball that uh, great players make lousy managers. Uh, but at least in my experience, tell me if you disagree, that actually great teachers can make great principals. I, I agree 100%. I yeah. think uh, great teachers can be great coaches and, and leaders of mm -hmm. other teachers. And I yeah. think, uh, you know, there have been countless... Uh, stories of incredible teachers opening schools and becoming directors and principals yeah. of those schools where they've had the opportunity and frankly the stories of people from outside of education coming in and trying to run a school or a system we've seen that in New York City uh, yeah. not so successful always. Right yeah well I remember once uh, I was going to visit Roy Romer who was superintendent of schools at LA Unified uh, speaking of someone who came out from he was the governor of uh, Colorado, and had been recruited to run LA Unified, which is a big, sprawling place. And uh, my, so I had a, something like a 10 o'clock appointment, and my sales rep picked me up at the hotel and early, and he said, listen, I got a treat for you. We're going to go to South Central LA, and we're going to visit a school which has just got outstanding performance. So we went there just as school was opening, and there was the principal, who was a tiny little woman and she stood at the door and everybody walking in had to shake hands with her and look her in the eye and that was you know you didn't get into the school unless you I think her name was Yamamoto or something like that and so on and I asked the rep I said well okay this is impressive but what else and he said no she was a great teacher and she's a walk-around manager and so on so we had a very good time. We walked through the school one to another, and then the killer was at the very end. He said, "By the way, don't mention her when you get to the district headquarters." Why? And the answer was, "Well, she's just embarrassing a whole bunch of other people, and so and so forth." So would you not mention uh, her? And she was one of the, for me, one of the first introductions to a former teacher who just had that. 
mission about her uh, that enabled her teaching a student body that was African-American, Hispanic, 100% uh, to really achieve, which leads me to Milton School. Uh, you're in a search. You can't reveal anything, I imagine, Eric. Correct. Um, early, early days of the search. Early days of the search. Uh, Dr. Nardone was extremely well-respected. I heard one parent complain to me that she was a little tough, and I thought, well, where's the complaint? I'm, <laughs> I'm missing something here. Anyway, so just in broad terms, um, what are you looking for here? Well, I, I think first uh, recognizing uh, Dr. Nardone's contributions yeah. to the Rye community, yeah. and I, I mean just the, the period of growth and expansion that she led at Milton School yeah. from the, the full renovation, the enrollment just growing tremendously mm -hmm. in her time there, um, her leadership in bringing the, the FLES, the foreign language in the elementary school program yeah. to the district it has just been an inspiration to many. Yeah. And so we can't forget thanking her for her service and her commitment to the district. Um, I, you know, I, I think much as Joanne has setting the pace by being an instructional leader, mm -hmm. being um, an excellent communicator, yeah. and someone who can get the message out about what's happening in the school mm -hmm. and how we as a community can partner together to, to have the very best environment for our kids from a, a social-emotional standpoint, yeah. from an academic standpoint, from, to a cultural standpoint, someone that um, really understands how to coach and lead teachers and help them to refine their craft and lead them. Um, someone that uh, can bring a community together and keep that community working together moving forward. Uh, it's a tall order. Um, you know, so I take actually, it you're not looking at the athletic directors to... Uh, <laughs> well, we went out to the community. Uh, yeah. We had a series of yeah. uh, forums last week to mm -hmm. ask the community what they were hoping for yeah. in the principal, and, and that's guiding our search. Um, we conducted surveys and got great feedback. Mm -hmm. Um, what is important to our community and, and what I just shared is certainly in line with that information. One of the things I've heard from teachers over the years, of course, is that they really do respect principals who know how to do, who can walk the walk and talk the talk, not just talk the talk. They can actually, you know, like, okay, I'll run a classroom, I'll show you how this is done. Uh, and to set some kind of school-wide expectation as to, you know, this is, this is how good we can be and we can get better. Um, how do you do that? You used to be a principal. How do you do that? Well, I think you have to do it. Um, you know, uh, we've been fortunate that our principals are actually doing that work in our buildings. I know mm -hmm. Joanne Nardone and our other elementary principals have been co-teaching yeah. with teachers. Uh, one, to support them in the work, to guide them in the work, but also to be fully aware of the challenges in implementing the different programs. So, yeah. I, I, you know, um, I know that they've gone in and co-taught the math lessons for their new math program, uh, which is pretty impressive. And, and we're seeing that uh, across levels where our principals are going in and, and doing that co-teaching and having that collaboration with teachers, which is pretty So impressive. I haven't started working with my grandson on math homework yet. Uh, am I going to be in the same position that my parents were when it was new math, namely 
uh, I don't understand this stuff. How am I going to help you? Um, you will, but we offer all these great parent university programs where we yeah. can teach you how to do that. And all you wouldn't right. be the first grandparent to come <laughs> because we've had... Uh, I, and we've had tremendous turnout at our parent university events. I mean, okay. Last night we had 45 parents at an event um, about internet safety, and mm -hmm. our staff developers and principals have been, uh, and assistant principals have been leading workshops to help parents so that we can be better supportive uh, with our kids and grandkids at home. Well, let me know how to find out. Maybe I'll get a little math refresher here and we so will on. Definitely so do that. Uh, we'll, we'll make sure you get the next announcement. Clara and Peter that. are counting on it. So. Just bar modeling. Look that up okay, over okay. the weekend. Bar that, modeling. That's your homework. Is this like vectors? I mean, I. I no, no, no. <laughs> it's not. It's just the the Singapore approach. Yeah, yeah. Uh, bar modeling mm -hmm. is the core of that. Yeah. So it's a new new thing to learn. Yeah. Um, but actually, but I, I think you'll enjoy. You it. know that I've been working with Singapore schools, so I'm a little. Yes, little, I do. A little familiar with all this and so on. The thing I um, really uh, hope is that. There is a change in in American culture related to uh, respect for teachers uh, and a, and sort of a higher expectation. They go together. I mean, you can't just say, "All right, let's all respect teachers," and then you get you know average performance and so on. What do you think about that? How can how can we change what has occurred over the last twenty thirty years? which is actually not that much of a respect for teachers, I would say. Maybe that's too strong, but... Right. I, yeah. I, I think that's a, that's a tough one to tackle. I, first, yeah. let me say that um, having been in the classroom and worked side-by-side side with our teachers, it, it's the hardest job you'll ever find because it, it's not the same on any given day or from one period to the next because you're dealing with young people who bring so much to the table, so much wonderful goodness, yeah. but also so much yeah, challenge. Right. And, uh, you know, from one moment to the next, one period to the next, one week to the next, a child can need something totally different. Mm -hmm. And the hardest thing in the world to do is, as a teacher, anticipate that. And when you can't anticipate that, modify what you're doing in the room for that individual child who's one of 20 or 25 and meet those needs. So, so one thing I'll say, and, and, and I found certainly here in Rye, we, we have yeah. wonderful, wonderful teachers and, yeah. and we're so fortunate to have the teaching team that we have. But I also have found that our, our families are incredibly supportive of the schools and our teachers. Yeah. Um, I, I think there's a, a narrative out in the country um, that's not so positive about teaching and I think it's certainly being felt. And, I don't when think there's you, any doubt about that. When you talk to teachers, you, you you can sense in conversations with them that the things they hear and see out in the media are, are hurtful, and they impact their feelings about their career and their jobs. So let me ask you then, if we're not going to change the national culture, if you could change one aspect of the Rye culture, a small task here, which is you mentioned, I think, recently about parents being exercised about what their children's career path, I mean, path to college starting at third grade and the level of pressure that's going on uh, in order to get into the right place and one thing and so on and so forth. So I what, think what, can, what can we do about this? Because I, this place is, I mean, I, you know, I ended up going to a good university and I think I bought a copy of Barron's 
SAT practice, and that was it. Uh, uh, there just wasn't, I can t just tell you, in 1965, 66, there wasn't this crushing, I mean, it just wasn't like that. So what can we do about this? Particularly so I, in Rye, which is full of high achievers, you know, so I, seemingly. Listen, I, yeah. I think this is an incredible challenge, but I don't think it's insurmountable. Yeah. Um, I think parents feel an intense pressure to do everything they can in their power for their kids to be successful. Yeah. Uh, and part of that, you know, the research is pretty clear that education is a significant contributing factor to success in right. life. Okay. I think there are pressures that come with that. There are pressures that come with wanting to set up your child and help them be successful financially as well as being happy in life, but thinking about when I'm gone as a parent, I want my child to be able to support themselves and have a have the things they need in life to be comfortable and, and have a home and, you know, not yeah, worry about can, those things. You know, but in an elementary school, worrying about, where you know, where you're going to college and... Well, but the college know. thing is huge because, yeah. um, you know, not to not to attack the publishing industry, but you know that That's people okay. like... Uh, well, every you, time we meet, Eric, you give a shot at the publishing industry. So why should this be any different? get any different? Right. So, uh, you know, yeah. the rankings. Uh, yeah. You know, the... Yeah. One of the most important factors in the college rankings is this, the um, acceptance rate. Yeah. And the more kids you reject, the lower your acceptance rate, the higher your ranking in Newsweek and U.S. News and World Report. Right. So there are lots of people from, so now I'm shifting away from the publishers, Newsweek and U.S. News, yeah. to the universities, because they put a lot of people out on the road going out to schools, high schools around this country, and telling kids, you have to apply to our school, knowing, full well knowing, that they are going to reject that student. And the reason they're pushing all these kids to apply to their schools mm -hmm. is so they get more and more kids to reject so that they can have the lowest possible acceptance rate, which will dramatically impact their ranking in those publications. You and think also people are still, particularly in Rye, so focused on brand names uh, at a time in which I, I've been reading about various educators saying things on the order of, you know, your child going to a state school and graduating with a minimal amount of debt is probably a better leg up on life than they're coming out of Amherst uh, with a hundred grand in debt or whatever it is. I think the brand piece, I mean, we live in a culture where branding is something that we're all impacted by every day. Yeah. And the, the marketing that goes into universities um, is tremendous. And, yeah. you know, when you're, you're watching college basketball on Saturday afternoon, yeah. you see the same schools over and over again. So if, if your exposure is you see Duke and UNC and you see yeah, all yeah, yeah, Michigan yeah, State yeah, yeah. and Michigan and that's what you see on television every week and then when you're looking you're watching college football during the college football season and you see Alabama and Clemson yeah. and Penn State and all those different places you, I think there's something that happens in your brain that, that that's what you recognize as college when you think of college you think of the places that you've been exposed to our kids have been exposed to this a lot. I know they have, schools. and I think in some ways it's 
overexposure. I, I can remember one of the startling moments in which I met the Nobel Prize winner in immunology and neuroscience, and he went to her sinus college. I mean, not, you know, the, the, the glittering 20. He went to her sinus college and ended up with a Nobel Prize. It, you know, it doesn't stunt you in life to go to her sinus college. I, I said yeah. this to... Um, to parents at the, the Rye High School PO mm -hmm. uh, parent organization meeting yesterday. Yeah. The match of school is the most important factor. That, that you, the child has researched the school and felt like this is the right place for me yeah. and it will help me to be successful. Um, the name isn't so important. And I, and I know, so, so you asked how do we change that? Yeah. And I think there are a lot of efforts in our community here in Rye, and by the way, this isn't a Rye issue. This is a Bronxville issue. This is yeah, a Starsville yeah, no, issue. Yeah, this is yeah, a yeah. They've all issue. got the book, right? It, it, it's yeah. all the same challenge, but yeah. you know, so a year or so ago, Heard and Rye brought Frank Bruni in, who had written a book all about the college application process, yeah, and right. and the auditorium at Rye Country Day was was jam packed, or the gym actually. Yeah. The auditorium wasn't big enough, so we were jam packed into the yeah. gym, listening to Frank talk about why finding the right match is more important than picking the name brand school. And that there's a good, there's a right school for everybody if that's the path you choose to go. Because I think it's important for us to recognize that we will have kids, that that isn't the right path. So yeah. it's incumbent upon us as parents and educators to provide opportunities and pathways for kids to explore it and see all sorts of opportunities, not just the standard, I'm gonna graduate from Rye High School, head to a four year college, and then go off to, to law school, medical school, whatever school. Yeah, yeah. School. One of the happiest kids I ran into recently uh, uh, was working at the Y. I uh, graduated from Rye High. Uh, really wasn't very academic. Uh, went into the Army for four years. And uh, now is working at the Y. And uh, ran into him. And I said, how's it going? He said, great. The best thing ever happened to me was not chase after college, but to go to the Army. It did a lot of things for me. And um, I am happy you made that choice, which doesn't sound like the typical, you know, Rye choice. So, all right. Well, we're going to revolutionize the Rye culture. Uh, we're going to find the world's greatest principal at uh, Milton. And uh, we're going to see if we can persuade my grandson to give up on the Yankees and the Mets and move back to the Giants. So, okay. All right. Well, Eric, this has been a lot of fun. I'm so glad you could take the time to be with us. Okay. Thank you so much. Okay.